la neve me cacciava sta montagna ma tocca e alla buia tu non piagna Welcome to Vino 101, episode 28, The Wines of Torre de Biati. So, first of all, um, I'd like to thank you for uh, agreeing to meet with us and discuss your wines in your winery. It was a pleasure to to meet you at the Gambrero Rosso. Um, of all the people that we met, uh, we could definitely tell the great passion that you had for what you're doing. It just emanated from your being. And um, that's what prompted us to really want to talk to you. Um, I guess my first question would be, how do you correctly pronounce the name of your estate? And what's the story behind the label? Well, I, I, first of all, I was happy to meet you. because not so, It's not so usual to meet people with so big passion for wine. Um, so, you um, asked about my labels. Um, the, the, the name of the winery is uh, Torre dei Beati, and the, the town where the state is based is Loreto Aprutino. Loreto Aprutino is a small town, a very small town, not far from the, from the coast of Italy, from Adriatic coast, is about 4,000 people, so a very small town compared to San Francisco, maybe. <laughs> And we are uh, about 25 kilometers from the from the coast, and the land there is very particular because we have a very high mountain just over the head, reaching 3,000 meters. The name is Gran Sasso Mountain. It's the highest mountain in all all the Apennine range. Um, so being in the middle between the coast and the mountain. Uh, means to be in a very good position for wine growing. It's very nice for tourism, actually, but um, uh, from my point of view, it's m- much more important for wine growing because the vineyards are just under the mountain and not far from the beach, so we have very good climate for for um, wine growing. We have uh, always um, warm wind coming up from the from the sea. And during the day, and cold wind coming down from the mountain, it's like a, a kind of refrigerator we have had. And so at night, we um, the temperature goes down until five, six degrees Celsius. During um, the day, it's uh, I speak about October, the last month of maturation of Monte Pulciano, the main grape we grow in the area. Uh, in the, during the day, the temperature is about 13 degrees Celsius. Uh, 30, sorry, 30 uh, during the day to 6, uh, 5 at night. So it's very good for for uh, preserving the aromas, the acidity of the, the grapes and of the wines. Um, so Loreto Putino is uh, uh, the name of the, of the town, uh, while a small uh, village is a, a portion of the, of the area. Uh, where the, the state is uh, really based is called Cochapazza. Cochapazza, uh, it's a dialect word. Uh, it means crazy head in dialect. It's a quite uh, uh, interesting name, maybe. <laughs> I don't yeah, know the meaning. Yeah. Reason, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, it's a particular area of Loreto Cucchino. 
very good for wine growing. We have very uh, famous neighbors and uh, our vineyard. One of them is, for example, from Valentini. Valentini is, maybe you know him, he's a, a legend in Italian wine. A, he has a very small estate and we are very close to his vineyard. Um, Coccio Pazza um, is also uh, the name I like to, to point uh, to one of my wines, Monte Fortesi now, but uh, it's the most additional expression of the Monte Pucciano in the area. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, to break in real quick, thank you for the, for the history, because uh, definitely all of our listeners would be interested in, and want to know, what, what first piqued your interest in wine, and how did you get into the winemaking business? Uh, um, I have to say that my father-in-law used to grow a vineyard in the area. Uh, he bought a plot in 1970 and um, he planted the vineyard in 1972. Um, he used to sell uh, grapes to other wineries. So um, his income was coming from selling grapes and not winemaking. Uh, but my wife and I, my wife Adriana and I, uh, were very uh, big wine lovers, maybe like you. <laughs> we were always traveling through tastings, uh, wineries, uh, estates, uh, talking to winemakers, uh, producers. And we were sommelier. We've been sommelier for the past, I don't remember, we started in 1990 if I remember well. Uh, so there, were, um, there was a, a very big passion uh, for wine. Um, and uh, my father-in-law in 1999 decided to stop uh, growing the vineyard. And uh, he told us to, if he wanted to, to, to start running. And um, you know, uh, we had other jobs before because my wife was a business consultant. I'm an engineer. Uh, but the passion for wine was very strong, so <laughs> we decided to, to face the new challenge. And it was not so easy at the beginning, because, you know, um, uh, wine making is very, uh, I know I'm, I can express that, um, quite a wild activity. Uh, I'm an electronic engineer, so I'm used to, um, to face different challenges with uh, Electronic um, um, <laughs> um, software, hardware. My wife is, was used to to face uh, I don't know um, accountability issues, uh, but wine was a very strong passion. So um, we decided to to change completely. You know, we didn't know before. We met just uh, for. For wine, because we got fiancé at the Vinitaly. <laughs> Vinitaly, you know, is a, the most important wine fair, wine exhibition for for wine. It's held in January, April, uh, or March this year. It's a very chaotic exhibition, uh, very nice. And we went there just as wine lovers many years ago, many years ago, I think. And uh, we met there, and uh, I, I brought her to taste. Uh, dried Sicily wines, maybe 
I had to um, to uh, make her uh, drunk because asking <laughs> her love. <so. laughs> Something missed between love and wine. <laughs> So anyway, in 1999, we decided to start to run our um, new uh, <laughs> winemaking activity. My father-in-law, as I was telling before, um, telling before um, was not a winemaker. He was a, a vine grower, so he used to sell grapes to other wineries. While my wife and I decided, decided to start making wine ourselves. Um, it was a passion, so we decided to start. We were doing experiments also in the previous vintages. We went there to pick um, 200 kilos, uh, 400 kilos of grapes from the vineyard and to make some experiments. We started a lot of books about winemaking, maybe too many books, <laughs> too many big books, French books. Um, and finally, we understood that uh, winemaking is a very, um, I don't know how I can express that, it's, very, um, it's an activity that um, it involves you totally. Um, it's, uh, of course, you need studying, you need uh, culture coming from the books, but also need practicing um, vineyard, practicing winemaking uh, physically. And it's a very interesting experience. I, I hope you will not start to make wine yourself, but <laughs> to, to become competitors. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've gone down that road once before, so I, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe in the future. Uh, instead maybe. Of, <laughs> instead of competitors, we could work together, maybe. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Quickly, uh, your, your vineyards are certified organic uh, according to European law. What yeah. prompted you to decide to farm in that manner? Well, you know, um, my father-in-law was not organic. Uh, he used to obtain a lot of grapes from his vineyard uh, without uh, any attention to organic issues. Uh, but when we went for the first time in the vineyard, uh, we understood that we had to change something um, because organic is important. I, I think not so much for customers, I have to, <laughs> I have to say, because um, if you drink um, a whole bottle of wine, uh, the danger is alcohol is not there. The small parts of uh, chemicals, residual chemicals in the bottle coming from conventional agriculture. Um, so, um, organic is, I think organic is very important for ourselves because we work at the winery, work at the cellar, work at the state through the vineyards, so it's important for ourselves mainly and mainly, first of all, for, for the environment, you know. Uh, when you spray chemicals in the vineyard, uh, you spray chemicals. Uh, if you spray only sulfur and copper, uh, as they made in 200, 100 years ago, uh, it's different. Um, so it's very, I think it's a small thing we can do for the environment, uh, each of us. Um, I think it was the, the real reason. We did that for market reason because, you know, organic wines uh, I don't know now. Now there is an increasing interest for organics, but 
uh, when we started, um, they were not so interesting. Uh, organic wines were considered not so good wines, not so high quality wines. Um, so there was not a market reason behind our choice. Just the, um, our aim at preserving environment in our uh, territory, in our village, in our fields. This is a real reason for, for going to organic. Um, okay, I see. So what if, if I guess, um, another question, uh, uh, Vino uh, Biologico, uh, Biodynamic, or Natural Winemaking, uh, where does uh, Torre di Beati fit in that spectrum? Uh, one of the words you told me uh, is natural. Um, is not a certified word. Um, uh, organic can be certified. Biodynamics uh, can be certified. Natural, I don't know what it exactly means. Uh, I know a lot of people saying I'm natural, uh, but I think it's important to give, give to the customer a demonstration of that. So there, there are rules, very um, precise rules uh, in Europe, but also in the US, uh, according to which you can, um, you can demonstrate you are, you are organic. Um, it's expensive because we have to call um, a certification body. Uh, we have to demonstrate, so we have to spend money for demonstrating you are organic. Uh, but I think it's important for, for the customer, because if I say I'm natural, uh, one can ask me, what do you mean? Uh, and I can't say exactly what, does it, what it means. Um, while if I say I'm certified organic, I can show exactly what it means. You know, um, every law has uh, good points and not so good points. And in Europe and the US, organic law, um, um, laws for organic farming, for organic wine making are not so strict as they could be uh, because the organic wine is a very big um, issue, very big uh, world in Europe and everywhere. Uh, so for being sure to embrace everybody and at least a lot of the producers, there are um, bounds which are not so strict. Uh, that could be more straight, much more straight. Um, yeah, uh, but um, it's important first of all to to be organic. Then uh, everybody can choose how to make how how to be organic. Um, just an idea um, of what we do um, at the state when we harvest. Uh, we don't pick everything at the same time, for example, uh, but we go on the same vines uh, in several steps. Um, uh, if a vine has, uh, you know, uh, seven bunches, uh, we go there the first time um, for one or two bunches. We go there after a few days for other one, two bunches, and then after some days again, and then again up to five, six times. Uh, in the time of uh, total time of about 20 days uh, to be sure that every time we pick only the most mature grapes 
the most mature branches, the most uh, healthy branches, and then we bring the big branches to the bunch to the to the winery. And we threw the case on the on a table, a sorting table, when uh, where we uh, can do uh, a selection. Uh, of the bunches to be sure that only the best can go into the tank for fermentation. It's very important because if you do that, it's a very careful process uh, and not very expensive, I have to say. But this way, I'm sure that only the best goes to the tank, so only the most healthy uh, bunches go to the tank for fermentation, so I can afford to use, for example, uh, very low sulfur levels for wine because wine was very healthy at the beginning. Uh, so this is, a, this is a, an example of an, an approach you can follow in um, when you say I'm organic. Of course, there are also big wineries that cannot spend all this time, all this money uh, for doing this uh, very steep selection, but everybody can uh, play his role in a different way. This is a, what I described is the role um, we decide to follow. Um, as I told before, we started just for patients who we have patients for natural wines, for high quality wines. So I wanted my wines can be uh, the best, as best as possible uh, for the simple vintage in my area. This is my main uh, project. I see. So you're, I see in front of you, you have, it looks like you have a, um, a bottle of the Trebbiano, is that correct? Yes, it's Trebbiano, yes. Okay, um, yeah. well, well, we're going to pour some in our glass, and uh, we'd like you to uh, explain what you're trying to convey with this wine. I put some Trebbiano in my glass. I, I beat you to it. We already have a little in our glass, so we're trying it now. <laughs> it smells delightful. Are you trying now? Yes, no. sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We're That's doing it. the same. <laughs> It, smell, it smells awesome. It smells delicious. <laughs> I have to say that I'm, my father-in-law uh, used to grow only Montepulciano grapes. Montepulciano is the, the most important, maybe the you know, hardly um, uh, most important red grape in the region. Um, so when we started to run the state, we only had Montepulciano in the, in the, in the vineyard. And we were missing some white. Um, there are some native grapes in the, in the region, and we decided to plant at the beginning um, the one that was, in, in our uh, opinion, the most important, the most uh, powerful, the most performing uh, white grapes. It was the Pecorino. Pecorino is uh, very rich in alcohol, in acidity, in uh, aromas, just uh, from the beginning. Uh, but it's not the most important white grape in the region. Um, so after a few years, we um, felt a bit, a bit um, coward uh, because, um, because the most important white grape in the region is not Pecorino, but it's Trebbiano. Trebbiano has totally a different character compared to Pecorino. Pecorino is a strong, rich in everything. Trebbiano is a, quite a shy grape. Shy. It means that it gives you lower alcohol, lower acidity, 
the acidity during the maturation of the grapes um, um, is dangerous because it can, can go down very quickly at a certain step of the maturation. So you have to be very careful to pick the grapes just before the knee of the, of the, um, the acidity. Uh, it doesn't give you so uh, interesting aromas at the beginning. It's like a shy person, you know. When you have a shy person, um, I, I, I think you have to give him the possibility to express his real character and potential. So um, if he's shy, you have to wait for him to give him some uh, chances to express what he really can do. Um, and um, the same for Trebbiano. So Trebbiano has to be built uh, at the beginning in the vineyard, uh, trying to cut down the production. This allows you to, to obtain um, a good body wine, uh, always shy at the beginning, uh, with not so outstanding um, aromas. But if you keep the wine at the cellar, uh, as we do, on the fermentation lees with bottlenecks so with the wine and trying to get the best from the mother of the wine, this is the solid part of the wine, the lees, um, you, you can obtain a very uh, interesting character uh, for the wine. And this is the reason for uh, deciding to make a um, um, long-lasting uh, version of Trebbiano. You know, Trebbiano, but also in general, in the market is very well known as a very cheap wine, uh, uh, going to market very quickly yes. and uh, yes. without a, sh a long life on the shelf, but with a short life. Um, so we try to do the, exactly the opposite. We try to uh, keep the wine as long as possible at the cellar, uh, on the fermentation lees, so um, for extracting more more character from the lees, from the lees, and then uh, we put the wine in a bottle in August, so all, almost one year after harvest, and we keep the wine in bottle for at least ten years before selling. Uh, what we have here now is 2012. Um, it went to market uh, last year, 2014. So two years after harvest. And in the glass, I feel um, an interesting character uh, due to the work I did. is like a sound for me. It's like a sound, a shy sound you have to, <laughs> to improve, <laughs> to try to, <laughs> to encourage in some way <laughs> to go towards the life. So, uh, it's a very strange label, you know, if you can. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was going to ask you about the label. I'm trying to figure out the artwork. Uh, it looks like... Uh, it looks like a guy uh, with uh, interesting haircut and eyes on the top of his head or something. I'm not sure what, what's behind the label. Yeah. The name of the wine is um, Bianchi Grilli. It means white crickets. Bianchi Grilli per la testa. Exactly white, white crickets in one's mind. Okay. Uh, when, I say, when I say in Italian, um, uh, I, you, have a white, you have crickets in your mind. I mean, you have um, strange ideas, strange, maybe sometimes dangerous ideas, particular ideas. Um, so I, I've chosen this name because the, the strange idea behind this wine is the, the idea of 
are the wine in the market um, very late compared to usual. Two years after harvest is a very strange idea for the market. Um, so the artist who did this painting decided to put this guy uh, with two white crickets in the, in the head, on the head. But he explained to me they are not crickets, they are just the eyes of the guy that move on the top of the mind of, of the head to have the possibility to look the, the world around from a different perspective, a different point of view. So just a representation of what we try to do with this wine. I see, I see. Well, the wine is, uh, it, it's, uh, as you said, it's, it's shy in the beginning on the nose, but when you put it in your mouth, it really, really opens up and you get the, um, uh, the lushness um, that I think you get from the extended time in the bottle with the pear and the peach aroma. It's, it's, it's really quite beautiful. It is. It has a, it was funny that you said that you were trying to do the exact opposite of the typical expression of this grape in the wine. I could def, I, I was tasting the wine as you were talking about that. And I'm like, that, that's exactly what's going on. It has a beautiful, it has a beautiful nose and this rich mouthfeel. It tastes like a very luxurious wine. It's not a wine played on the strength and power, uh, but mainly on elegance, on nuances, uh, on... Um, uh, it's a fine wine, so elegant, complex, more, yeah. more than strong. It's not a strong wine. I would agree. It's, it's great. So, um, what should we... Uh, we sh we're going to also try the Pecorino, correct? Pecorino. So one one quick question about uh, Trebbiano d'Abruzzo. Uh, you know, there's Trebbiano d'Abruzzo, there's Trebbiano Abruzzese, there's Trebbiano di Suave, there's Trebbiano Toscano. It's yes, all yes. very confusing to the consumer. Are, are all these the same grapes or different varieties? No, no, they are, they, they are different clones of the same variety. The main name variety is Trebbiano, but they are different clones. They are very different. Uh, the, the clone here is Trebbiano Abruzzese and it's very different from the, the most spread of the Trebbiano, that is Trebbiano Toscano. Okay. There are also other expressions, that are, for example, Trebbiano di Lugano, which is more similar to Verdicchio, for example. There are different clones of Trebbiano in Italy. Um, you know, in, in, um, in France, the, <laughs> the, the, the grape is called Uni Blanc. Yes. And uh, it's the grape they use for making cognac, you know, for distilleries. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, I, so I guess you could say you're getting uh, you're getting the ultimate out of it. Then, if uh, in France they use it for cognac, so yes, <laughs> you know, I have an important in Paris um, who has a very deep knowledge of Italian wines and wines everywhere. I have to say. And um, he's a very big wine lover. He specializes in high-quality Italian wines. And when I he tasted the Trebbiano for the first time, he told me, uh, "Oh, I explained uh, all the reasons for making a Trebbiano. And so the, 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 the aim at giving value to a, a variety that is normally uh, considered not so not so special, uh, good only for cheap wine." Uh, low quality wine. So uh, I, I explained him uh, all the reasons 
uh, behind the, my new wine, Trebbiano, and he told me, he appreciated that a lot. Mm-hmm. And he told me, ah, oh, you're right, very good ideas, very good wine, really very good wine. I will never buy one bottle because we, in France we use uh, Trebbiano for making cognac, but I think it's a very good wine. It is not to sell in France. But <laughs> So, shall we try the uh, Pecorino? We'd like to hear your uh, thoughts on the Pecorino. Pecorino. And the bottle that we have here, we have uh, uh, Abruzzo uh, Pecorino. It's a 2013, 2013 is what we have. Is that the same wine you have? Yes, the same bottle I have here. It's Pecorino 2013. At the top it says uh, Jacques con il fiore. Um, the name of the wine is Giocheremo con i fiori. It means we will play with flowers. I think it's a good indication for consumer because the wine is very rich in flowers, flavors, not only flowers actually. Uh, but I, mm, there is a story also behind this label and this name. Uh, because the, um, it was our first white wine, and it was coming from a grape, Pecorino. This is a, 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 an old grape of the region, but with, with not such long story, uh, because um, it's a very uh, low yield grape, low production grape. So in the past, the Pecorino was forgotten because uh, the vine growers were not interested in uh, uh, planting variety with a um, low yield. Uh, just in the uh, end of 90s, half 90s, uh, some winemakers uh, started to make 100% pecorino wine, so there is not a long story about this um, uh, vinification of this grape, and there is not a long story for us because uh, Pecorino was our first white wine, so um, at the beginning we decided to make this wine uh, and it was like uh, a new challenge for us, making a new wine from a new grape. And so our idea about wine is that wine and vineyard are, are much bigger than humans. Uh, much bigger than us. So, um, when I have to face a challenge uh, of a new wine, of a new grape, I know my time will be um, always too short to really understand the character of the wine, the character of the grape, the character of my vineyard. Uh, The vineyard will last for years and years, the land will stay there for (laughs) forever. Uh, <laughs> I will do, do not the same, but um, so um, I was in front of this new challenge, a new grape uh, for me, but also for the region, uh, and um, a new um, wine vinification style, white vinification style for me. Uh, so uh, our approach was the approach of a, of a child. A child um, is uh, going towards life, and. Uh, um, he has in the mind very simple ideas, but he's open to everything. Um, his ingenuity, you can use this word, his ingenuity is total. 
So this is the same ingenuity uh, we use in the approach to the pecorino. So is the reason for choosing the name, the label, for example, because the painting from my daughter, my daughter when she was three and a half years old, uh, to express the ingenuity of our approach toward, towards white wine and towards uh, a pecorino wine, which uh, didn't have such a long story in the region and nowhere. So. So why did you decide to plant Pecorino first be before uh, Trebbiano? Because um, I, was, I was missing white grapes and from the analytical data from the studies uh, from literature, um, Pecorino uh, um, shows outstanding um, um, figures uh, in terms of um, sugars, in terms of acidity, um, and in the wine, in terms of taste of uh, um, flavor expression. So I decided to start, to start from Pecorino, and I planted the beginning four hectares. For the time, it was 2005. It was a very huge quantity. Uh, four hectares was very so. Everybody told me, but are you crazy? All this, all this vineyard of Pecorino this is not so much. <laughs> but I, we are trusting a lot in this grape, and I think that after 10 years, uh, now Pecorino is uh, maybe the really emerging grape of the region. Uh, the quantity is actually not so big in the region because we have in total in the region about 900 hectares, but increasing very quickly. I see. Uh, yeah. um, so it's the reason for choosing the pecorino. I, as, I, as I explained before, uh, after three years, 2008, I decided to go back to the Trebbiano, which is the most uh, popular grape of the region, yeah. just because I thought to be to have been covered <laughs> before. But, um. Well, it seems when you when you taste the the pecorino in the glass, or when you first put it up to your nose, it definitely has a much more uh, fragrance and a much more powerful aroma um, yeah. than the Trebbiano. Consider well, pecorino is 2013, and it's a wine. The wine you're tasting now is um, almost sold out now. Um, it went to market in May of 2014, so after some years from the harvest. I like to keep the wine at the cellar for some months. You know, there are versions of Pecorino which are very quick to go to market, but I think they don't really express uh, the real character of the, of the grape. Uh, Pecorino is very strong in acidity mainly, so it has to stay uh, at the cellar to gain some uh, roundness before before going to bottle. This is my approach, at least. Um, so it's a wine that is sold out now, but as you can feel in your glass, I think you you can say it's still very alive. My history about Pecorino starts in 2008. It was the first the first harvest, the first bottle, and all the vintages are still very alive. They are not dead at all. Uh, so it's a very interesting character for a white grape. You know, in uh, 2013, um, and, and in bottle with the wine at uh, 8 grams per liter of total acidity, which is um, an outstanding uh, value of acidity in a, in a white wine from Central Italy, not, not only for, for Central Italy.
It's a wine with a very long life. What type of uh, foods would you typically recommend that people have with the Pecorino? Uh, it's not a wine that you can drink with a, with a light appetizer, I think, because it's a full cut of wine. So um, I think it can match much better, uh, more complex dishes, like, for example, I don't know, uh, risotto uh, with um, uh, mushrooms, for example. Uh, ah, there is a recipe I tried myself. <laughs> um, it's um, a kind of pasta made with a um, um, ragu of rabbit, um, asparagus, and and saffron. You know, saffron yes. is very typical. So, yeah, saffron. saffron is very typical for Abruzzo because we have here a very good production in Navelli, in L'Aquila province, we have a very good production of saffron. It's a very, very uh, important <laughs> for, for, for um, the cooking of the region. And so uh, you feel uh, the pecorino is very um, rich of flowers and fruit, but especially of spices. You, you feel here, uh, for example, sage, rosemary, wild herbs. Uh, so it can be good for matching some complex dishes like the one I told you. White meat, for example, with some sauce. Um, so, but I think saffron is the best, the best um, thing you can add to the, your dish to, to resolve the combination uh, with the pecorino, I think. God, that sounds great. We'll definitely have to try that. And, and I love dishes that are accented with saffron. I can help you. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, anyone that makes a living from farming knows the beauty and the power of nature can be awe-inspiring. Um, the, the Abruzzo region experienced heavy rains and a snow blizzard a couple of years ago. How were the farmers in the area affected and what changes have been made to agriculture since then? Well, it happened in our area, in the area of Collina Pescaresi. And Loreto Puntino, my town, was one of the most um, damaged from the very big snowfall two years ago. It happened at the end of November. Uh, between 20, I remember, 20, 26 and 7 November, maybe, or 5 and 6 November. But um, the snowfall lasted for two, two nights. And um, 2,000 uh, hectares of vineyard um, fell down in the ground because you know in Abruzzo the, the main training system is pergola uh, abruzzese. It's not uh, spur cordon, uh, but um, it's pergola abruzzese. It means that the the, the vines are uh, about 1.8 uh, meters high. And the leaves and branches expand on the horizontal plan um, so that the leaves get more, um, get better the power of the sun. And they also can protect the branches from the, from the dryness coming from the sun. Um, so the uh, branches and leaves for a horizontal curtain. Mm -hmm. um, and when the snowfall happened, again, remember, we were coming from a um, warm, very warm, too warm season. And so the leaves were still on the branches. 
Um, so the snow uh, layered on, on, the, on the horizontal plant of branches and leaves, and they form a very big uh, weight, too big weight for, for, the, um, for the training system. And a lot of 2,000, as I was saying, 2,000 actors um, uh, fell down to the ground. So there were damages, a lot of damages for, for the traditional uh, training system in the region. I know some, uh, but, uh, I avoided that because in, in the middle, between the two snowfalls, in the morning uh, after the first snowfall, uh, I went to my vineyard uh, to uh, uh, pull down all the snow from from the from the leaves. Uh, so uh, I was able this way uh, to to save my vineyard. Uh, they say it's very dangerous, so nobody did the same. Uh, so who didn't we did who didn't do the same uh, lost uh, the vineyard. Um, and now I know some of them they try to. Uh, pull the vines up again um, to um, put new wires, new poles for uh, training the, the vines again. They lost a lot of vines, of course. Some of them decide to unplant everything and to plant a new vineyard. Um, of course, now they are very afraid of, um, <laughs> of what happened. So, they decide to uh, change, uh, to turn to from uh, pergola bruxese, so the horizontal uh, training system, to normal sport corner, uh, so vertical, uh, to what is that in the future. So it will change in some way the, the landscape of the region, at least in our area. Uh, and it uh, requires a lot, of course, a lot of, a lot of work. <laughs> From vine growers, <laughs> because it's not easy to accept um, your, your, that your vineyard is uh, destroyed, so <laughs> you have to work. You know, vine growers are very patient and they are used to accept what nature gives them every year <laughs> uh, and to rebuild and to start again. <laughs> so. Yes, it seems to me that uh, you are quite courageous going out into the the vineyards to shake uh, yes. to get the snow so. off of the vines. Uh, I could see why no one else would follow what you did. Seems <laughs> that seems pretty amazing, but uh, uh, the culture. I guess the landscape has changed now because you have a different uh, training system now, and, and with the newer vineyards, would that change the quality of the wines at all? But I, I, uh, you know, um, the, the common traditional system, uh, training system is a pergola bruxese, as I was describing, describing before. Um, in the past, everybody was saying it was a very bad training system because it was only aimed at a quantity instead of quality. Uh, but I have to say that in our region, uh, there are um, good reasons for planting vineyard um, in a transit system as a pergola bruxese uh, because uh, it's true um, it gives you a lot of quantity if you don't uh, train it correctly um, and um, it requires only handwork 
there is any machine, there is not any machine uh, that allows you to, to train the vineyard, to grow the vineyard um, in a mechanical way. Uh, so um, everything has to be made uh, by hand. Um, yeah. If you are careful, you obtain lower quantity than usual, so you obtain a very good quality. And they also uh, did studies uh, comparing, for example, a spur cordon uh, and, uh, versus pergola uh, bruzzese. And these results in our region demonstrated that um, the pergola bruzzese gives you higher sugar and higher polyphenols. So in our region, they demonstrated that the, the pergola bruzzese is better for quality. Of course, it requires a lot of work, manual work. Yeah. Um, and um, you have to be aware um, of the temptation of, of doing uh, too much grapes, because it can do that. So you have to, to be careful in this, in this issue. But um, uh, so um, I think both of them as have, um, have uh, different. Um, they are good for some aspects and not so good for other aspects. For example, uh, the pergola bruzzese is a horizontal plant, and so um, when you are after September, for example, you have a, a very uh, big, for example, rainfall. Uh, the rain reaches the ground, the ground becomes wet, and the sun um, doesn't easily reach the ground to dry the ground. So you have uh, the ground wet for some days uh, more than needed. Uh, so there is a, a kind of microclimate under the, the bunches, which is, can be too uh, wet for, for the bunches. Uh, if you have uh, a spruce cordon, uh, the, the sun can dry more easily the ground very quickly. Um, but uh, on the other hand, for example, in very dry uh, seasons, uh, the leaves of uh, the horizontal plant of the pergola bruxese can protect the bunches from dryness from the, from the, the sun, for example. Yes. So in different seasons, they have different effects. On the quality of the grapes, I to say. Okay, <laughs> so you should have everything to be best. <laughs> well, that's I, I, that's a really good explanation. Um, you you have it looks like you have a bottle of your Chirasuolo. Chirasuolo. Um, okay, um, I think, in my opinion, I think Chirasuolo is probably one of the most uh, underrated rosés in all of the world. Uh, you craft yours in a very unique way. Tell us about it. Well, I have to say that, uh, as, I as I told before, Cerasuolo, um, uh, excuse me, um, I planted the, my first white in 2005. So before that, uh, I used to grow only the red, Montepulciano. And, you know, Montepulciano, in some way, forces you to, to make um, uh, red wines. And uh, so the Cerasuolo was the only escape towards the way of freshness for me. So it's the reason for, for having a special love for this, for this wine. Uh, it comes from a grape 
the same grip as the red, and as uh, the full-body reds coming from Monte Pulciano grapes. But it's surprisingly uh, fresh and alive, uh, rich in acidity but, um, and freshness, uh, but uh, uh, of body at the same time. So the same body as uh, the red Monte Pulciano, uh, but almost the same freshness as a white wine. And so it's a very, it's a very interesting combination for me. Yeah, I, I sneaked ahead of you and I tried some of it. Uh, if I had to just pick one word to describe it, I would just say delicious. <laughs> it's got uh, some really uh, zippy acidity. I, I love the uh, cranberry and it has a, like a little, um, almost like a watermelon uh, flavors to it. Uh, it's juicy like, um, in, here in the States we have a, a, a candy, it's called uh, Jolly Rancher. And it's, it kind of reminds me of that. And uh, has some good power in the mouth, so it's it's a great wine. I really like it. What's the name of the candy? It's called uh, Jolly Rancher. <laughs> <laughs> you have to look that up and try it out. But they have different flavors. But it kind of it it, uh, it smells more like a it, it smells more like the candy. The candy gives off very pungent fruit fruit smells. So um, and it's very 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 sweet. But you're I mean, not seeing the wines that way, right? Um, no, it's uh, it's a beautiful wine, and like you say, it has all of the body and complexity of a red, but uh, but also those characteristics of a white, of being fresh and light. It's quite a dichotomy in the glass. It's it, that's a trick to pull off. It's pretty. It's awesome. But you know, the, uh, now I think everybody makes rosé wine from everything. Uh, from every kind of race. In Italy, uh, we don't have so many um, uh, classical, so many historical rosé. Um, the real traditional rosé are maybe three, four in total in Italy. Uh, one of them in the south is come from, comes from uh, Negro Amaro grapes. Then you go north, you reach Abruzzo, and you have Cerrasuolo made for Montepulciano grapes. And you go north with Bardolino Terretto or um, in Sutirol with uh, Reincrezza. So there are not so many traditional grapes, really traditional grapes in Italy, um, giving you a traditional rosé. Cerrasuolo is made for Montepulciano grapes and um, is able to, to combine, uh, to, to carry out a good combination between, between freshness and body. And it's, you see, a fresh, full-body wine, very good for matching food. Um, here in Italy, um, the Italian uh, sommelier considers this wine the best Italian wine for match, the most flexible uh, in matching food. You can range from appetizer, antipasti all'italiana with uh, salumi, uh, not dry cheese, um, so fresh cheese. You can go through um, first courses like noodles with tomatoes, with uh, rice or um, bean soups, mm. um, uh, white meats and fish with some sauce at the main course. Um, the, the best combination here in the traditional um, Abruzzo cooking is with a very particular um, fish soup called brodetto, 
is made from in Egyptian, not not so usual to find. But what what, <laughs> what is it, it? What is it called again? Brodetto, brodetto. Bro, you brodetto. Know, broth is brodo, broth, yeah. and brodetto is a small broth made from thirteen different varieties of fishes. They are poor fishes, not the most important, most famous poor fishes. They are the fish that the fishermen used to eat on the boat before coming back home. Hmm. Uh, so they are not so big, they are small fishes, uh, strange names like uh, <laughs> Gallinella, so they are strange names I can, I, can, I can tell you because they are Italian and sometimes diverse names. Uh, but they are FB 13 different varieties, uh, 13 because of the same number of the invitees and uh, last dinner with Jesus Christ, so 13 invitees, 13 fishes. Um, it's a soup made with tomato sauce, with some pepper and uh, also some hot pepper, with very good extra virgin olive oil. Um, you need, of course, a very big uh, napkin in front of you because <laughs> it's very difficult for your white shirt. <laughs> and the girasol is very good <laughs> with his wife, with his own fish. <laughs> So, so okay. don't wear a white shirt when you're eating the brodetto. <laughs> <laughs> so you make uh, you make the the wine when you um, can you tell us the label? I'm looking at the label and um, my Italian's not so good. But uh, what does it what is it saying on the front of the label? It's a love poem about myself. You know, we are a small, um, small wine, and we don't have money for artists uh, and, and painters and poets, so we have to do a lot of things ourselves. Okay. A love poem, a short love, because I, I like in the Cherasol, especially the color and the flavors. The color is uh, very charming, also the flavors are very fresh, very intriguing. So uh, I think the Cherasol is a romantic, a romantic label. I remember some years ago I went. I went with my French importer in a, in a city in the north of France, Lille, and uh, I entered a bistro. There were a small round table with two fiancés there sitting for having dinner. And they were in love, of course. And there was my bottle of Chirazol in the middle with a love poem. <laughs> it, was very, <laughs> it was a very nice situation. And the, the poem says that. Um, uh, um, I try to translate in English. <laughs> Beautiful, uh, you were looking at me, promising love. Uh, I still keep keep the memory of your perfume rose. It's a <laughs> it's a, a stupid a stupid thing, <laughs> but nice for the label because it's very romantic label. That's that's very nice. I I don't think I would have been able to translate it that way. <laughs> Thanks for letting us know there. So um, uh, let's see. I guess we're uh, next up will be uh, your red. And uh, how do you say that? The name? Yes. The name is Mazzamurello. Mazzamurello. Mazzamurello, it's a quite simple name. It's the name of the guy you see in the label. It's um, a sprite, an elf ah. of our tradition. Okay. And uh, um, he lives in houses, uh, doing 
strange jokes. Um, for example, he hides your, the keys of your car, he hides your glasses in the morning, he does strange sounds. So it's a happy sprite, a joking sprite of evolution. And uh, I've chosen this guy for the label because, because the wine is very, very good. <laughs> because the wine um, has a, a special character compared to normal uh, Montepulciano wines of the region. Um, the work here is made um, for 20, in aging for 20 months in Bari. And um, uh, the, but I keep in I keep in the barrel and um, um, part of the fermentation uh, fine leaves, uh, so the wine is not clear, but it's foggy when I put the wine in the in the barrel. And I have to keep it foggy with butter mash, so still the wine with a with a steel stick. Uh, very often, again, at least for the six months of maturation, you know. Uh, then I, when the leaves uh, don't have anything more to tell to wine, uh, I let them settle in the bottom of the barrique and I wrap the wine and I put the wine again in the same barriques for some more months. In total, 20 months okay. in barrique. But the first months, the, the process with the batonnage on, on, the, on the leaves. Uh, this process is quite dangerous because having these in the reds um, means sometimes to to have risk of um, uh, not so good flavors. Yes, I, I believe uh, a batonnage uh, for the listeners is um, when the when the leaves are at the bottom of the tank or the vessel that the wine is stored, um, it's stirring up those yeast, those dead yeast, and mixing them in the wine. And it's more common, I believe, with white wines than it is with reds. Is that correct, Fausto? Yeah. More common for white wines. Not so common for reds. Especially because the reds, the risk of uh, bad flavors is, is bigger. And so I do this work myself, so I have to be very careful to the single balance. I have to taste them very often to decide if they have to be wrecked. But... You have to be careful also to relax because um, this is a wine that during the aging changes a lot. From At the beginning it's very um, green and vegetal and after that, after the few months of batonnage, this character changes, turns into different, more fruity um, and then after one year and a bit more than one year, the wine becomes uh, like you, you feel it now. So with a special flavor, uh, very um, um, with its own flavor of Mazzamorella. It's particular, but it's the same, almost the same every year. After, but after uh, at least ten months of maturation in, in barrel, not before. Before it's quite uh, there is quite a fight inside the wine. You feel strange notes for some months, and you. You are a bit really scary. Oh, something of something bad that Mazzamorello can can do in in your barrels. So I, I imagine the Mazzamorello, the, the guy, uh, is playing with the barrels hidden at the winery to obtain strange results. So if he decides to do something bad, 
It seems like uh, perhaps when when you're making this wine, you could have maybe a few sleepless nights after you've tried a few barrels and you're not sure what to do. But some, yeah, of course, sometimes you have to, to decide what to do. But not so often, actually. Sometimes you have to rack um, earlier than six months, but in general, they... Um, they have a very good evolution in time, so you have to follow them, to listen to them, and you don't have to do so many things apart from steering. You know, steering means not only keeping um, melting and then the leaves, but also giving oxygen to, to wine at the same time, because when you put um, a stick, steel stick inside the barrel and you move, there is some oxygen uh, dissolving inside the wine. So the oxygen uh, helps you in opening up the, the flavor of the wine, of course. So, uh, Fausto, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole ocean full of just basic, juicy, soft, round, 7 to $8, up to 10 or $11 Montepulciano in the U.S. market. You're producing an artisan-style wine, and you're working with low yields in the vineyard, and obviously you're using a great deal of precision in the cellar. As a result, your wines command a higher price point. Um, one could say you're taking the path of not the norm. Why have you chosen to make these type of wines? Oh, mm, you know, at the beginning, at the beginning, but also now. Uh, mm, uh, my, my aim was not that as staying in the market. I just wanted to make some wines that I liked. Um, I also make a cheaper wine than, than Mazzangrello, but it's made from with the same attention as the Mazzangrello, the same selection in the vineyard. So several pickings, so um, um, sorting table, exactly the same attentions. Uh, of course, the grapes for the Mazzarello come from the best corners of the vineyard, for the one that come from the whole vineyard, but the attention is exactly the same. The price is lower, is not as low as uh, other Montepulciano, you know. But I think Montepulciano is very, uh, very underrated for the value. Uh, Montepulciano um, is one of the most important red grapes. It's for, of course, is the, the only uh, red grape of the region of Abruzzo. It was originated in the, in the part of Abruzzo, and from there it spread in all the region and then to the neighbor region, to south of Marche, to Marche, to Umbria, uh, to Lazio, Campania, north of Puglia, Molise. But in Abruzzo it finds its best uh, environment for giving you the best results. Um, and it's one of the most important grapes. Unfortunately, everybody knows that in, on the shelves you can find Montepulciano d'Abruzzo DOC with the same name as Mazzamorello, uh, which are not so good quality, not so good quality. But um, it's our fault because we didn't uh, trust in the past in the quality of the wine and we find an easier way to market uh, selling sometimes uh, wines also out of the region uh, to be bottled out of the region with the name of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo uh, from merchants, from bottlers 
Um, and uh, it gives, of course, to the uh, DOC an, a bad image, but I can't be victim of, of this image. I like to make good wine. So I, <laughs> so I, I had to do something I like in my life. I see. So it's, 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 it all relates to your passion, and it's, it's clearly evident um, talking to you. If, if someone were, was planning to visit Abruzzo, what places would you recommend they not miss? This is a very, it's a wonderful region. It's out and far from normal touristic routes, unfortunately. But it's very nice to visit because we have a centuries of history. You know, Abruzzo people were the very ancient soldiers who were the, um, the last in Italy. To, um, to be worn by Romans, <laughs> we resisted for centuries to Roman power. <laughs> it was very close. Abruzzo is like an island because we have mountains everywhere around the, the region and the seaside on the east coast. So also the traditions are very well preserved. And um, the very particular point is that we have the two highest mountains in all the Apennine range. You know, the Apennine range uh, goes from the north, from Alpi in the north to, to Calabria, to the south, the south um, of, of the leg of Italy. And um, the highest, two highest mountains of the Abruzzo range, of the Apennine range, are in Abruzzo. They are called Maiella in the south and Gran Sasso in the north. They reach almost 3,000 meters. And they are very close to the, to, the, to the sea. If you go skiing in winter, um, you can see the, the shore under your skis. Uh, in April, you can, you can go skiing in the morning and uh, swimming to the beach in the, in the afternoon. So, and in the middle, uh, we have a number of very interesting cities we are, which are not so well known, but somebody finds them. You know, I have, for example, a very gentle um, lady coming to visit me many years ago, not too many years ago, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, he was so enthusiastic of the visits that he, she still uh, writes me, uh, emails me, uh, remembering the visit. Uh, very simple visit. We just ate, drink some wine, drink some wine at the cellar, eating some pecorino cheese and some salami. And discovered she was the director of a free collection in New York, which was an outstanding person. And she still remembers his visit in a very simple um, uh, area, for sure very underrated. Um, so you can start from uh, the country, from the mountain, uh, you can visit very interesting cities, for example, Loreto Crutino, my town, um, is small but very um, picturesque historical center. Uh, there is a, a church with an outstanding uh, um, fresco. Um, maybe if this fresco had been in Australia, they, uh, you have to pay maybe $20 to see it, but it's free of charge in Italy, in my, in my town. <laughs> so, there are beautiful cities like L'Aquila, for example, but unfortunately it was destroyed by the earthquake in 2009. 
but there are a number of other um, small towns very nice to see. There is a very picturesque coast south of Pescara uh, called the Coast of Trabocco. It is a restaurant not far from San Francisco in Oakland called Trabocco. Um, it's run from by an uh, Abruzzo man. Um, El Trabocco is uh, the name of a particular special um, building made from uh, wooden poles and built on, uh, on the sea, the water, and used by fishermen for fishing. And all the coast, the south coast of Abruzzo is rich of these buildings. It's very romantic. You can also have dinner on some of them. Uh, and you have to book at least four months in advance to go for dinner, for having dinner there. So, so it's, a very nice, it's a very nice area. I see, I'm quite jealous of the, of the, of the region. And I have to say, I'm, I don't know if being so lucky that tourists discover the region <laughs> or they keep away. <laughs> because, there is a risk they they can destroy the region, or at least that people from Abruzzo to be um, uh, tourism oriented can destroy the region itself. You know, it's very nice to visit in there. And it's not so far because if you come, if you fly to Rome, it's uh, no more than two hours driving, one hour in the to the mountain, and two hours to the coast. So I it's see. very close to Rome. So. Well. Um, what would you, uh, I mean, I guess a lot of people say um, wines are like children and none are the same. And uh, I, I think they say the same thing with barrels of wine. Um, do you have a vintage uh, that you prefer over another or, and if so, what? Like over like say the last three, four, five years, what's your, what's your favorite uh, vintage for your Montepulciano? You told the right thing. The wines are like children. <laughs> and those vintage are like children because every vintage uh, <laughs> requires a lot of work. Uh, so <laughs> it's not easy to say. Sometimes the easiest thing is to say that the best vintage is the one with the, the best climate. Yeah. It's not always so, I think. Uh, I see that uh, all, also vintages with and uh, not so uh, good climate um, give, give you uh, very interesting results. For example, uh, we have here an outstanding vintage 2007 uh, where the weather was wonderful for all the season. So I got to the to harvest time um, bunches were perfect and they we are keeping perfect for one month, one month and a half. At last, um, the last day of picking, I decided to, to leave on the vines uh, some bunches to make a dry wine. But they, they were never um, uh, going uh, bad. They were always perfect. We picked them after November, about uh, 20 days after finishing the harvest. They were still perfect. So it was for sure an outstanding uh, season from the climate point of view. Uh, 2009 was instead a fresh season. 
quite fresh, some rains during all the season. So the character of the wines are totally different. If, we, if you taste the uh, Mazzamurello, for example, or also uh, the Coccia Pazzo, which is the other um, crew I make from the same vineyard, uh, of, the, of the two vintages, you taste two totally different worlds. Um, uh, warm wines coming from 2007, complex, very strong, maybe they need um, 15 years to express the best, still now. Um, and if you feel it's that 2009, uh, they are quite a North Italy wines. I have um, a very kind lady who imposed my wine in, uh, in Belgium, and she told me a very interesting thing. <laughs> uh, she told me, ah, this is 2009, and she told me, last year, two, two years ago, 2007, was um, a wine coming from the, the earth, from the soil. Uh, 2009 seems like a wine coming from the sky. Well, very interesting. Just to express the difference between two different vintages. Uh, coming from the same from the same cloth, from the same land, from the same people, <laughs> my, my wife and I. But the wine are totally different. And I, I can't say this is better, this is worse. They are simply different. I have two children, a male and female. They are very different, but I can't say this is better. <laughs> you're not going to, you're not going to pick one over the other in front of us, are you? <laughs> but pardon? You're, you're not going to pick one of your kids over the other in front of us, are you? No, impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> right, right. So uh, is, uh, I have one more question for you, and I, I think we should probably wrap it up. Is there an ideal age or a drinking window for uh, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo? Uh, it depends on the version. You mean the Mazzamorello? Yes. But um, you are drinking 11 now. And I think he's still quite young now. Uh, you can, you can taste it better in about four or five years. But of course, these wines are very, a very long life if you keep uh, careful at your cellar. Um, they are not far from the quality of more um, renowned uh, wines from Italy like Brunello and Barolo. They, are, they have very much longer history. But Montepulciano grape is demonstrating that it's able to give you a very long-lasting wines. And Mazzamurello and Cochapazza are, are in this range, of course. So they are, I think there is not so um, mandatory age limit for, for, for these wines, especially the selections. Uh, I, I think that people would be surprised if you go into a store and you see Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. It is kind of confusing because you can see a bottle that's listed for $10 and then you can see yeah. another bottle that's listed for $30. And, you know, the no. consumer doesn't know what to do sometimes. I know perfectly. I know perfectly. And we are in some way victim of such a situation because when I, I come to San Francisco to explain my wine or I go to I don't know, Frankfurt or to Paris or Hong Kong, they tell me the same. Uh, unfortunately, we have this history that is maybe not the best history, possible history for, for the region, for a region. 
Um, we are trying now, um, there are some uh, good winemakers in the region trying to demonstrate that uh, Montepulciano can also be something different than usual have seen for so many years. Um, quality is, uh, I think it's quality for this kind of wines is quite um, self-talking. <laughs> so uh, I think um, the problem is that behind the same name, the same label, you have so different wines. If you go to Montalcino, you look at the bottle, Brunelli di Montalcino, you know that behind the label there is a wine that has more or less the same price, more or less the same quality, anyway, a good quality. If you go, if you come here, you look at the label, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, DOC, and it can mean a lot of different things, unfortunately. But you know, Montalcino is a very small area, and Bangalore were very good, and was also easy there to build such a strong image. Uh, while Montepulciano d'Abruzzo uh, cultivation is spread to about one third of the of the Abruzzo region area, uh, with different landscapes, different territories, different soil conditions and climate conditions, <coughs> and especially different mine condition for the winemakers and a lot of the production, maybe 82% of production is in the hand of the very big um, cooperative wineries uh, that um, started the activity about 50 years ago uh, for the sake of um, buying machines to make wine, good right. wine. From, from the wine growers, wine growers were very poor, so they didn't have the possibility to make wine. So they decided to aggregate, to, to create cooperatives, to buy together uh, machines, tanks, and to, to make wine. And it was working in the beginning, but there was maybe not so uh, intelligence to understand what uh, the world wine was going into. Um, other regions um, were more were smarter and better in understanding the, the changing of the um, world of wine. While Abruzzo uh, decided to be um, more to, to to make wine in a more simple way, uh, not to invest on the brands, not to invest on the on the brand of the name, uh, but um, very often. To, sell bulk wine to somebody else who had the power in the market uh, to sell wines himself. So now I have to say that 70%, um, you know, 70% of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo DOC is bottled out of the region. It means that the big cooperatives sell uh, wine, very young wine, to operators out of the region and they bottle the wine and they sell the wine with the name of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, but uh, bottled out of the region. Wow. Of course, the wine abroad uh, with the same name as the Mazzamurello, but a totally different story. Uh, and there is nobody who really trusts in the quality of this wine because uh, the cooperative who, who physically make the wine has not the. Uh, uh, 
I don't know, um, the ability to understand the real value of the wine because it's outside in bulk. And uh, out of the region, they just want to make money from this very cheap wine, so they don't have any interest in increasing quality and uh, and prices and image of the wine. And so now we are we are victims in a way of this uh, 50 years history, and we found just very recently an association of. Um, private uh, wine growers in Abruzzo uh, to try to give value um, to the wine, wine has a very big value, uh, but also to the story, to the real story and potential of the wine and also of other um, uh, food products of the region that are almost unknown everywhere. Uh, we found this uh, association just uh, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, with a very interesting aim at uh, giving value to, to our region. You know, you ask me what to see in the region, in Abruzzo region, it means that you don't know Abruzzo, but almost nobody uh, knows where Abruzzo is and what's, uh, how, is it, how it is beautiful, apart maybe from the director of Freaks Collection in New York. Uh, but um, there is not um, a region well known for food, for nature, for art, for history, and for wine as it should be. Um, I think <laughs> we try to do something better for the region. We are trying to do something better in promoting the region. But if you can sometimes, it's not so <laughs> not so far as I was saying from Rome, so a couple of hours. <laughs> so you can be the first in San Francisco <laughs> yeah, to <right>. come here. <laughs> right. Would be interesting. So you you're from year to year I've I've had your wines over the years and from year to year the, the quality obviously is, is very fine. You've received high praise. Uh you've received some very high praise from the Gambrel Rosso, Slow Wine, the Wine Advocate, and many others. Um, are you content with your reputation that you've built? And is there anything new in the future for Torre de, Torre de Biati? What do you mean new in the future? What do you mean exactly? <laughs> well, There's <are> nothing you, <laughs> new. <laughs> do, are you, uh, do you have uh, another wine that you're experimenting with, another native varietal, or do you have uh, another side project that you may be considering? My... Uh, you know, we usually don't follow market needs. <laughs> uh, we don't follow market. Maybe somebody is asking from a cheaper red, somebody is asking for a different white, but, uh, you know, um, doing something different and giving uh, to Sour and Corens means um, spending a lot of ideas and effort, and uh, every project here um, requires a lot of effort. So uh, I don't like to do something only because the market is asking for something. Uh, I only like to do something because I think this is the right thing to do. So I made, for, for example, uh, uh, not, not here, but this is a normal pecorino, but I made another pecorino. Um, with a different name, a different label uh, that doesn't go to market um, in one year, but after two years from, from the harvest. 
is a, a project to try to better understand the aging potential of the variety. Because everybody is speaking about, only about uh, the aging potential of pecorino, even if not so many people go to market with uh, all vintages. Uh, what I'm trying to do now is studying the real, uh, besides what every everything everybody says, the real aging potential of the grape. So I, I did another bottle, uh, but um, a bottle to understand the real potential of the pecorino, but there are projects not uh, market-oriented, indeed, <laughs> just uh, oriented to my idea to better understand the behavior of my vineyard or my, or my grapes. So um, this is what I'm doing now. I see. So it looks like we, we're losing our Skype connection here. It's, it's, it's becoming compromised, so I think we probably should wrap it up. Um, I want to thank you for thank you. spending time with us and explaining your wines and sharing your wines with us. Um, they're lovely indeed, and um, I'm sure that all of our, our listeners are going to um, get a lot out of this cast. you have anything you want to add, Bill? I don't, uh, other than thank you for your time. I'm very pleased to have been with you. To, to speak about my wines, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, we will. We will. Uh, we will definitely come. And uh, next time I'm over in Italy, we'll we'll come by and visit you for sure. And we'll make sure to come to visit the the region of Abruzzo and and learn about it. It sounds it sounds spectacular. I, I really hope so. There are also very good food here. So. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Food hey, sounds good. <laughs> sounds fantastic. That's right up my alley. Right on. I, I, <laughs> okay, Fausto. So um, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon, hopefully. Thank you for your, to you, for your connection. You're very kind. Ciao, bye-bye. Ciao. Bye.